In this episode of Kitchen Table Magic, we have some adult language and mature content being discussed. If you have some younger mages around, it might be time to grab some headphones. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Each episode, I sit down with an inspiring person from the magic community. We hang out on their kitchen table to talk about Magic the Gathering as they share stories from the journey of their lives. This is episode 9. In this episode, I'm talking to Chris Morris Lent, better known in Seattle as CML. CML is a writer, journalist, magic player, SCG Open champion, Pro Tour competitor, and author of the new book, A Brief History of Magic Cards. CML's perspective and style of writing is refreshingly subversive. He's written articles for Gawker, Daily Dot, Kotaku, and Seattle Weekly. CML's new book, A Brief History of Magic Cards, was fully funded through Kickstarter and chronicles the journey of Magic the Gathering, Wizards of the Coast, and his own experiences playing the game. CML's writing is interesting in that it takes a different perspective. He's not afraid to get past the peachy rosy side of magic coverage and dig through all the skeletons in the closet to find something different. We dive into the possible future of magic and where Hasbro is taking premiere play. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Morris Lent. Hi everyone, thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. My name is Sam Tang, I'm your host today. And here I am sitting with Chris Morris Lent, better known as CML. CML, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Yourself? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me over. Thank you so much for coming over. And we are sitting on your kitchen table right now. Uh, yeah, dining room table. Dining room. Pretty close. Metaphorically, we are at the kitchen table. That's correct. Not within five miles of a convention center. <laughs> of a convention center. That's right. Really? Which one? Well, the one downtown. The Seattle one. <laughs> the Seattle one. In addition to holding uh, lesser events like PAX and a number of other nerd conventions, it also uh, hosts a few magic events now and again. That's right. It does host a couple of magic events now and again. Um, they do worlds there, right? I think they used to once upon a time. Like They did worlds in Seattle in, uh, I want to say, 95 or 96. Mm-hmm. And it was super cool to me just like growing up as we sit here so enjoyably at this dining room table that is a kitchen table. Mm-hmm. They had worlds like not a mile and a half directly south of here. The Wizards of the Coast flagship was in the same location. Mm-hmm. And now maybe uh, it'll be going online in the next few years just because that seems like the wave of the future and uh, the crux of the direction that Hasbro wants to take the game in. Chris, I wanted to talk to you about you being a writer you're very entertaining. I've read some of your articles on Gawker, Daily Dot, things like that. You've also been interviewed by Jenny McCarthy about sit down peeing, funny stuff like that. That's right. It's pretty hilarious. And also you wrote an article that was on Gawker or BuzzFeed? On Gawker, I believe. It was about SCG Open Portland. SCG Open Portland. Yep. And then you won that. I won the tournament on shrooms. Yeah, that's very interesting. I thought it was a lot of fun. Well, there was a real chance that Magic Media would pick up the story in its full glory. But somewhere like Gawker, um, I felt it would be a a better forum for that kind of transgressive writing. Moreover, I think Magic has a lot of potential as a mass media enterprise. A lot Mm -hmm. of people play the game, 20 million, 25 million. A lot more people want to read about it. So if we get broader media coverage on larger sites and not just strategy-oriented articles that appeal only to existing Magic players, then I think that could help grow the game and provide a lot more uh, scope for independent voices and draw more people into the game, which is what I'm trying to do with my book Mm -hmm. after the article. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me more about your book. It's called A Brief History of Magic Cards, and we call it the only honest look at the people behind Magic rather than the uh, characters that 
are depicted on the cards. Of course, um, magic branding these days is very heavy on storytelling. It has, though, as its heroes, Jason, Chandra, and Liliana, and Gideon, and Nyssa. But the real people behind magic, you're not going to meet planeswalkers. You're not going to meet your heroes. You're going to meet real people like me, and like you, and like the absurd people that started playing the game at the very beginning, who were very, very talented and went on to have very illustrious careers outside of the game, like John Winkle managing a hedge fund, for example, or Mike Long making millions of dollars on internet marketing. The game, for whatever reason, attracted a very high caliber of person back in the day, mm -hmm. playing it, designing it. It was a very I don't want to say healthy culture, but it was a revolutionary culture. Mm -hmm. It was the start of something big and a very important precursor to esports. And then there's been somewhat of a cultural decline after that, followed by somewhat of a renaissance. But a lot of uh, what's going to happen to Magic's future is up in the air. And we try to get into uh, some of the salacious stories behind that, some of the more interesting characters, and a lot of the things that you cannot read about in either Wizards of the Coast whether there's a sort of official version of history or on the websites that are um, run by second parties that are very much dependent on staying in Wizards' good graces. Interesting. Chris, your style of writing and your journalism is really about a curiosity to discover more about the community. Right. I think a lot of it is introspective, too. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that we have to um, pretend is very cool about mm -hmm. magic, or maybe even believe is very cool about magic. And of course, there is. But there's also some stuff that can suck about playing 24-7. The game requires a lot of dedication, and it doesn't reward its high-level players as well as it should, in my opinion. So a lot of the thrust of the book is not just learning about the community. It's learning about myself, my own personal history of playing Magic, what made me do it as a kid at the age of nine, and what made me want to take shrooms as basically my last act as a competitive Magic player, and then a month before that, go off to the Pro Tour in Brussels and see something that was interesting, to say the least. Well, what happened? Can you share that with us? Well, I'd say it was just a little bit disillusioning. Like, obviously, <laughs> there, were, there was some personal responsibility for this. I brought a terrible deck that people <laughs> told me not to, to bring to the tournament because I'd lost faith in Whip of Erebos, but we don't need to get into that. <laughs> um, it was just like the whole event was, um, it felt like being on the set of an ad. Um, it wasn't all that good of a spectacle. And um, it didn't really need to be because Magic plays to such a small audience globally as a competitive sport. On Twitch, for example, the Pro Tour will peak at maybe 30,000 viewers mm -hmm. a day during the Pro Tour, the premiere event, whereas Hearthstone will have 80,000 on a random weekend afternoon. Um, as a result, the Pro Tour isn't as glamorous as one would lead to believe, to say the least. You have to pay, for example eight euros to eat a burger in line or like three euros to eat, drink a cup of coffee there isn't catered lunch like every you have to buy the cards there the swag bags are miserly and then the whole social experience is i imagine very very good if you get to see your friends because you're already on the bandwagon but there's not very many of those people there's a lot of people more like me and it's very hard to see whom such a spectacle in person or with the Wizards coverage team could uh, appeal to. So I think it's no wonder that they might be moving in a more digital direction. Chris, when did you decide to write A Brief History of Magic? Well, it was about seven or eight months ago. It was cold outside. The, the winters in the Northwest are not quite as uh, cheerful mm -hmm. as the summers are. We're very much like Norway, the neurasthenic north, you would say, in literary terms. And uh, I wanted to write a personal history of playing magic cards 
not only to offer a sort of counter narrative to um, the types of stories that you read on Star City or Channel Fireball or The Mothership, but also to disclose myself to myself. What had made me want to play magic obsessively for such a long time? What had led me to go to the Pro Tour and pursue that? What had led me to go play in opens and sit in convention centers when more often than not, because I'm not that good at playing magic? And what kind of culture had magic had in the very beginning? Was it just youthful illusions when I was nine and picked up the game? Or was it actually something very different? And with the way things are changing here in Seattle, especially with the gaming industry within software, people now fill arenas, of course, yeah. to, to watch sport or esports. Right. They watch them online in enormous numbers. And I got a sense that magic is a better game than all of them. Mm -hmm. So why wasn't it drawing the same audiences? And was it once like them? And it turns out, yeah, at the very beginning, it was. For many years, it was. It pioneered a lot of these concepts. But along the way, life happened. You mentioned earlier on, Chris, that around 20 to 25 million people play Magic the Gathering in the United States. There's worldwide, only... I think. Oh, worldwide. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty big. It is. It's... um. It's a rough estimate because we want to say that revenue for Wizards is somewhere around 300 million. That's right. Maybe 350. So per capita, if they're selling all their boxes at wholesale and MSRP is, let's say, a little bit less than twice that, then players are still spending only around $30 per capita, which mm -hmm. seems very, very low because mm -hmm. a draft costs 10 to $14. Right. Nevertheless, there's a ton of people that play Magic, and I think there are a ton of people who play casually at the kitchen table, who feel very much disconnected from the wider world of magic and competitive magic, and that it quite simply isn't as true for the esports, which are more organically integrated. Hmm, interesting. I think the culture that you and I think about as competitive players, <laughs> I guess pseudo-competitive players. <laughs> pseudo-competitive players. <laughs> yeah, semi-competitive players, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. No, don't apologize. You just elevated my status. <laughs> semi-competitive player, Sam Tang, who has top-aided PPTQs Ooh, and yeah. what have you. Well, just by playing in a PPTQ, you're one of like one in 200. Really? Yeah, that's right. How many people, like what percentage of Magic players do you think have registered with the DCI? Mm, I would think almost all of them, like maybe 80, 90%. 5% is the really? official number. Really? How That's right. You, how did you find this out? It's on the Wizards Play Network site. Oh, really? It's on the mothership, yeah. So Wizards is very coy with a lot of their numbers, and it's hard to find out things for sure because they're a subsidiary of Hasbro. They're not their own company, mm -hmm. which of course colors the culture immensely. Um, and we'll get into that later. But mm. for now, there's um, there's just parts of the Wizards website, even like uh, Wizards Play Network, that people like you and, and me, who've played Magic obsessively, don't know about. What about everybody else? What about like the 90%, 95% who have never registered with the DCI? What about the 99% who have never played in a PPTQ, much less top eight at it? Huh. So I think the challenge for Wizards is going to be to appeal to a broader player base and redefine gaming, maybe not even redefine gaming as it did in the very beginning, but at least get it back into the mainstream where it very much was ahead of the curve in 1993 and for several years afterwards, and also get those people to spend more money by making quite a spectacle of premier play. This is fascinating, Chris, because as a journalist, as a writer, 
and clearly you are a deep thinker, you're really looking under the hood of this community because just kind of what you're bringing up in just this brief conversation, you've already got me thinking about all these things that I've never thought about. That's right. Well, I want to say that like magic players, um, according to a friend of mine who owns a store around here, don't want to think about the business aspect of magic. Maybe because the cards are um, very expensive, but people don't tend to, I don't know, balk at microtransactions, for mm-hmm. example, on the internet. And they are somewhat more interested, at least as a proportion of viewerships. They're more interested in Premier Play as a proportion of viewers with respect to how many players there are. There's been a number of very large Hasbro announcements in the last seven or eight months that indicate that huge changes are coming. But when I emailed the Premier Magic sites, Star City, TCG, and Channel Fireball, they weren't really interested at all. And these things are going to change the entire paradigm for how magic works. It's going to change the secondary market, so it'll change sites like that and stores like that. And it may even change what the game is perceived to be to the outside world, which is chiefly nothing at this point. So I thought maybe a good way to remedy that would be to write a book that um, appealed to people within magic and outside of magic, which nothing really has done (laughs) for quite some time. Interesting. I think we need broader publicity outside of magic, and I don't know why, aside from a, a certain community myopia or a desire not to look under the hood, that we have such a huge game that's so profitable and don't try to get the same amount of coverage on mainstream gaming sites even. Not not just sites like Gawker, but somewhere like Polygon or Kotaku mm-hmm. or IGN mm-hmm. or Daily.esports or gaming or what have you. That smaller games and games that are, in my opinion, not as good as Magic get a lot of try- play on. Right. I mean, we're recording this right now in the middle of July, and the famous Pokemon Go just got released just a few (laughs) weeks ago. There you go. And it's exploded. I played Pokemon Red way back in the day. I loved it. Yeah. But then I grew up and stopped playing Pokemon. This new game came out, and it's like everyone's playing it now. It's pretty out of control, yeah. It's super out of control. (laughs) And I'm... And, I, and just kind of given what, what you just said about why isn't Magic bigger, there's kind of no reason, in my opinion, why Magic can't be as big as Pokemon Go. Right. I mean, what do you call it when you meet somebody through Pokemon Go? Could you call it PokeCupid? PokeCupid. <laughs> if you met somebody. <laughs> PokeCupid. Oh, that's really good. It's very hard to imagine in Magic the same thing happening, hmm. but it was very commonplace back in the day. Um, in a nutshell, Magic just appeals to. Um, such a narrow sliver of the populace, like such a, a narrow band of gamers that are like white guys who are nerdy like me mm-hmm. from the 90s. And now, of course, it's much bigger. Mm-hmm. Gaming is much more diverse and more inclusive. It's right. chosen that as a very good business model. And Magic, of course, brought a bunch of people into gaming that wouldn't have gamed mm-hmm. back then. It was a very accessible product. And now I think the the chief problem doesn't have much to do with the rules complexity, nor do I think it has much to do with an intrinsic lack of viability as a spectator sport, Hmm. except for that cardboard is hard to see. Like If they were going to release a good digital edition where you could see things on as as the game played out and really engaged strategically with it, then it would be not behind Hearthstone, really, in terms of price burst, and it would not be behind League of Legends in terms of accessibility mm-hmm. to people like wondering what the hell is going on if you don't have an intimate familiarity with the game. Right. Um, so it's not history or like rules complexity. I don't think 
its intrinsic lack of viability as a spectator sport, except for not having a good online platform, which mm-hmm. they're trying to address. I think it's chiefly a marketing and cultural and branding issue. Interesting. And a certain corporate myopia. But the announcements hopefully will change that. I don't know if you've read them. I have not. Tell me about it. Okay. Well, this is something that we get into at the end of A Brief History of Magic Cards. But um, starting in November when I started writing the book, and I didn't learn about these until months later myself, um, Hasbro started putting out press releases and investor reports and so on. And the main upshot was they were working on a product called Magic Digital Next. Nobody really knows what it is. It's somewhere in between duels of the Planeswalkers and Magic Online in terms of player complexity, because it used to be that you would get into FNM at the very beginning of your competitive journey, and then you'd be able to not only participate in the fantasy role play of Magic, but also be a part of it, like be inside it. You could be your own hero by mm-hmm. making it to the Pro Tour. Well, the issue was 95% of the people didn't register Oh, with the DCI, which continues to be true. So now the trajectory is introductory products like duels, which were quite successful compared to Portal in my day, right. say, which were just simplified cards that were perhaps a little bit hokey or maybe even ahead of their time. And in between um, duels and something like Magic Online, which is direly in need of a facelift and may very well get it, they put Magic Digital next. And nobody really knows anything about what it is except for that they're hiring a ton of software developers to make it a thing. Apparently, the team dwarfs R&D in their size and they'll be working, if I'm not mistaken, closely with branding because Magic is turning away from a competitive game with the Pro Tour at its pinnacle and competitive players as its heroes to something that Hasbro thinks will attract a broader audience. And I am inclined to agree with them. Yeah, I think so as well. I remember seeing Duels of the Planeswalkers like a while ago. Right. It was like on iPad or something like that. It was also on like Xbox. It was on like a console. My brother is a pro gamer and he played that and he was totally down with that. And he was like, oh yeah, I know how to play Magic. I was like, really? I've (laughs) never seen you play Magic. And he's like, who's showing me this product? And I was like, mind blown. The graphics were great. The mechanics were there. All the rules engine was there. It was a very smooth UI. The arrows, everything looked shiny and amazing. And I looked at that and my jaw dropped to the floor. And I was just like, Magic Online looks like totally different. Why doesn't Magic Online function this way? It's really absurd. Well, I mean, the the technical answer is that Magic Online isn't seen as a way to... um acquire new players, new player acquisition Mm -hmm. is very much Hasbro's goal at this point. And they've been quite successful at it, but um, at a rate that's very small relative to what it could be. Hmm. So even though the game has allegedly grown by over 20% a year, they changed out the CEO. That was another big announcement. That's right. From the internal guy, Brian Goldner is the CEO of Hasbro, and he handpicked Chris Cox as the successor to Greg Leeds, who presided over Magic's um, renaissance from Eventide mm-hmm. forward. Chris Cox is a uh, Microsoft guy who was a, in a very high sales position, doing digital product marketing and branding. So that should give you an idea, along with Magic Digital Next, along with the defunding of traditional Pro Tour institutions, which the entire community seemed not to grasp the broader significance of, and the commensurate and even larger increase in funding and premier level play, that should tell you where magic might be going at this point. 
Yeah, if Wizards of the Coast is getting some kind of like Microsoft game studio Xbox knowledge injection, that would be a game changer for what we know in this game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the magic meta game, right? Right. We always talk about the meta game. We'll mean like what decks are going to be played and how we're going to respond to that. We might even talk about the meta game as the game within the game. Mm-hmm. We're talking about, I don't know, Jace or Chandra or whatever, but we don't talk about the metagame as the game beyond the game. Right. Or the frame narrative where not only are we sitting in the convention center playing with Jason Chandra, and not only are Jason Chandra off somewhere on Innistrad and there's a spaghetti monster <laughs> and an oh shit, like what's going to happen. But there also are massive changes to the tune of millions and millions of dollars that are going to affect the entire culture of the game as well. Yeah. So there you go. So Chris, you do cover some of these topics in the book, right? All of the topics. All of the topics. And give us a little bit of a roadmap of the book. Where does the book start? Sure. Well, it starts with me in this very house at this very kitchen table that is a dining room table. Um, I ask my dad, can I, you know, could we buy some magic cards? And I'm very abashed about it. And we go down to the Wizards of the Coast flagship store, which is a mile and a half south of here, or was. We buy magic cards and we play with house rules and so on. I start playing with my friends and I get super addicted because before Pokemon cards, like magic grasped that collecting things and acquiring things was a very important part of nerd culture. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I play you know some games and then uh, I chart the beginning history of like how magic came into being as a collectible card game that wanted to be uh, you know baseball cards but also poker or whatever and um, how that was like a, an immaculate symbiosis how magic was meant to be very much a game that was as big as the movies which it succeeded at but it also was meant to be a game that people could play in line at conventions which it hasn't quite succeeded yet though Hearthstone. You know, points to a certain direction there. Um, go through the the very, I don't want to say rocky, but like the lurid early history of magic where the culture was pretty crazy. Hmm. whole bunch of fun anecdotes like plowing 60 million cards of fallen empires into a landfill after nearly crashing the secondary market, having to deal with these secondary retailers. that <laughs> of course, ordered as much as possible and then glutted the market and were really unhappy about it. Um, stuff like that, stuff like the free libertine culture at Wizards in the early days. And then after that, I kind of grow up. I go away from Magic Cards after a, a negative experience playing competitively. So it's very easy for me to empathize with anybody that gets intimidated. You know, they're intimidating. And then Magic's own uh, kind of swoon in the 2000s, where after revolutionizing gaming by making the Pro Tour and really like empowering players and attracting the kinds of people that you want to have as your brand, it kept going in that direction. And it just wasn't right for the time, which then Greg Leeds realized in 2008 with Eventide, he took over the company. And then the game has been growing at a very steady rate since then. A couple of years after that, I got back into it after online poker died, started playing and, um, as an adult, and discovered that the game was a lot more fun as a competitive endeavor when we had actual money to spend on real decks to the huge benefit of Wizards. I think there were a lot of people like me that came back to it, and then I ended up going to Brussels. <laughs> Sweet. Getting disillusioned and coming back home and writing the book and wondering what's going to happen next to Wizards. Cool. When did you go to Brussels? In April of 2015. Okay, so really pretty recent. Pro Tour Dragons. Pro Tour Dragons. Won by a Tarka Red. Yo, sick. 
Absolutely. Try to make those strategies viable these days. And I think that's one of the the great triumphs they have as game designers. Recently, they've made the game more appealing to the masses and people like me who like green spells. But what else could they be doing? And that's what the book is really about. It's meant to be appealing to anybody really with an interest in gaming or anybody with an interest in fantasy novels. Because magic playing is so quixotic, there's a little bit of Don Quixote in all of us. And I don't know. I don't know if you've ever read Don Quixote. Yes. So it's about Don Quixote being a minor nobleman without much to do. So he reads a bunch of fantasy novels and he thinks they're a real thing. Mm -hmm. And then he goes off and reenacts them. And that's like the dawn of the novel is a Western art form Mm -hmm. for literature. And so I think a lot of magic... You, you can think of it in that way. Like you can understand a lot of people in Seattle if you just think of it as a quixotic thing that they're doing. And Wizard sells one kind of fantasy narrative within the game with the Planeswalkers, and it sells one kind of fantasy narrative outside the game with the Pro Tour and the Platinum Club and so on and the Hall of Fame. But what if that narrative used to be true? And it did. What if it stopped being true and how could it be true again? That's so interesting. So do you foresee something, Chris, that is about to happen? Definitely. I think that, well, in addition to the digital initiative with Magic Digital X, whatever whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. I see a gradual phasing out of the Pro Tour in in the future. I think that Magic will try to become more like esports while at the same time leveraging its massive in-person network. Because what's one of the best things about playing Magic? At FNM. You can just hang out with people. Exactly. You can have a beer. Yeah. You can chill. Whereas if you were playing a game of League, you might be yelling at your opponents <laughs> or more likely your teammates right. by yourself, which could be you know a little bit frustrating and isolating. So Magic has that. like It has that going for it. It's really not so far behind in terms of price support for its pros, but it's very far behind in, in terms of the independence and the autonomy it grants them. And I see Hasbro opening up the purse strings on Magic Digital Next, if not a bunch of other initiatives related to competitive play, as long as they can use it to draw a broad audience. And then maybe a virtuous cycle can begin, and the game can very easily compete with titles like Hearthstone on that axis. If we see them trying it, I'm pretty sure it'll work, but given the implementation of Magic Online, there's obviously a good reason for a lot of skepticism too. Interesting. Do you think that there's going to be a big upheaval? Like there's going to be some, I don't know, some some sweeper. I'm just going to use that. <laughs> there's going to be a Wrath of God. <laughs> Well, there might be wrath of God. I think it's more likely that there will be a languish, if not an anger of the gods. Maybe a pyroclasm, if we're going to be more realistic. Mm -hmm. Like They're probably going to keep most of the things around, but not everything. Got it. And it might be sort of a one-sided beneficial sweeper. Interesting. Not something wholesale, like a wrath. Interesting. (laughs) It'll be a planar outburst. It might be more of a... Gosh, how do I put this? It might be a miracle bonfire. Oh, okay. More so than a, a planar half burst. <laughs> <laughs> but anticipating a little bit of collateral, uh, probably more of a languish. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to be all indiscriminate about it, though, like a planar cleansing or like even mm-hmm. a wrath. Mm-hmm. It'll be more surgical. That's fascinating. I mean, there's so much potential for magic. When you play the game, you have to think like, well, this is the best thing ever. Why aren't more people doing it? Mm-hmm. And when you play a PPTQ, what's your experience of the whole thing? Like, what keeps you from playing more magic? For me, it's been just, I don't really have enough time to like figure out the meta. And so 
I net deck. It's like a shortcut. I just mm-hmm. go on, I net deck, I watch a couple of videos about how the deck is played, and it kind of it, it kind of gets me 80% of the way there. For sure. But for me to win that pre-TQ to get to the RPTQ, I've got to be at that 95 percentile. And then for me to win that RPTQ, now everyone's a 95 percenter. I've got to get, I've got to really push it and it gets to like diminishing marginal returns. Definitely. And then I see this awesome movie called Enter the Battlefield that Nathan Holton, Shaw, and Kordenhauser did. And I look at someone like Reed Duke and Owen Turtenwald and William Huey Jensen and I'm like, holy smokes. Those guys are really, really good at playing magic. They are. Nate is super nice too. I've really enjoyed his company. Uh Uh-huh. Um, what kind of audience does Enter the Battlefield have? Who's going to watch Enter the Battlefield? I watched it and it was someone like me that was like pretty casual, but knows enough about the game, knows a lot about the history. I started playing an Urza Saga and I wanted to level up, but then seeing all these people, these narratives of these people that I really look up to, and I think the community looks up to. Right. Okay. So, people who play competitive magic Mm -hmm. or who are at least on the cusp of playing competitive magic Mm -hmm. could watch it. Do you think anybody from outside magic would have much of an interest in it though? I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to acquire new players. Mm -hmm. What about like when you watch it and you see the incredible ability of someone like Reed who has to work a part-time jewelry job or someone like Owen who's at the pinnacle of the game, you've got to think to yourself, what if the branding for this was more compelling? What if these people led a lifestyle that was actually something that a broader demographic even outside of magic could aspire to. For all of the skill that it took to put together, I think is emblematic of the myopia of magic marketing these days. Moreover, the decision to cut Travis is something that is also worth discussing shortly. Yeah, and we're talking about Travis Wu. That's right. So he was cut in, I am told, in post-production because he aroused some sort of controversy or the other. Yes, we have this discussed by Travis in the first episode of Kitchen Table Magic. Travis shares this with us. It's a little crazy, right? Mm -hmm. It is a little bit crazy. Well, Wizards, of course, is very finicky about their brand, and as well as they should be in some ways. What if there was more room for independent voices, not necessarily in the formal magic ecosystem, but existing outside of the market influences, Mm -hmm. where they have to toe a certain ideological line and pretend Mm -hmm. that everything is perfect? Right. I think that would really help help grow the game, and I think that a lot of um, the cultural queasiness towards magic comes from people perceiving quite correctly that it is kind of a cult activity. Like if you play competitively, then it is kind of weird that we're sitting inside a a cramped card shop and battling with cardboard and it may be very fun to us and it may actually be very cool, but the optics are are not the greatest and the culture isn't as inclusive as it should be and the narratives aren't quite as realistic as they should be. And I think that's part of what my book tries to bring, hopefully not just without magic, but to magic too. What you said earlier, the optics of it, because you are a professional poker player and you played poker professionally when it was legal to do so online in the United States. Once upon a time. Once, yeah, once I wasn't a- nearly as good at it as I was at Magic, but um, I won a lot more money. Yeah. And the optics of Texas Hold'em is also a very particular way, but somehow Texas Hold'em seems to have taken America by force, that now Texas Hold'em is as normal and as commonplace you know, the World Series of Poker, I mean, Eric Froelich has two bracelets. And Definitely. And, and, and Marshall Sucklows used to be a professional poker player, and he still plays poker at a high level. That's right. Um, well, like a lot of those guys in the beginning of Magic, um, 
like Efro or Jordan Berkowitz mm-hmm. or a lot of these really hilarious people that time has forgotten. Oh, no. Uh, Justin Bonomo, who once got mummified in a bunch of magic cards by PTR, which is in the book, of course, um, is a lot of these people achieved a lot of success at a very, very high level of poker right afterwards. The poker boom happened. You know why, right? I actually don't. Okay, so Chris Moneymaker mm-hmm. won entry into the World Series of Poker 2003 main event from playing a, a short, like a sorry, a, a kind of cheap satellite on PokerStars, which is still the largest poker client in the world. Um, he went out there and he won the whole tournament. Yeah, and ESPN caught it on camera. It was this guy who was kind of a charismatic, bumbling, every man, a little bit of a hick, and kind of you know okay at poker, but just enough to make you think like I can do this without being too intimidating like mm-hmm. he he mowed through this cast of like old school texas oil men and rounders and cigar chomping businessmen and what have you and it took the world by storm it mm-hmm. was inspirational right. he won 2.3 million dollars too yeah so there you had a big prize a good character some villains for the character to confront and uh untold riches at the end and a lot more people getting into it. You had the elements of a good fantasy novel. Yeah. In real life. Yeah. It wasn't quite as quixotic. In other words, so then poker exploded and uh, the poker boom came to an end with some harsh legislation in 2006. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it left the US market entirely in right. 2011. But it was a really huge industry. And I think it was, it's still is the largest precursor to esports. But magic was there. A decade beforehand. Interesting. I've been um, <clears throat> doing some broader game journalism on chiefly on skin betting and CSGO. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with the whole thing. Yes, I am quite familiar with it. My brother is a pro gamer. <laughs> He's a global elite. Um, and for the okay. listening audience, CSGO is Counter-Strike Global Offensive. Global elite, huh? Yes. He's, yeah, he's very good at a lot of games. Yeah. He's very, very good. Dude, like this is the sort of thing that the kids that I tutor know all about. They know mm-hmm. all about skin betting. They know kids who have and, and just like really quickly, skins are just cosmetic items in CSGO that you can pick up and it's kinda random and they're worth a certain amount. So it's kinda gambling, but it also kinda isn't and it has a lot of precedence and stuff like WoW or Diablo two, even where it's kinda gambling, but like it kind of isn't. But right. then when and- you started like betting them, it became an issue legally. And like when you started betting at skins as like a sort of mock currency, it became a big issue. You know, I'm actually kind of surprised that there isn't some illegal gambling for Magic. I mean, you've got the Pro Tour. I mean, the Pro Tour comes out. It's a brand new meta. Not that many people know who's going to win or what deck is going to win. I don't understand why there's no underground betting for this. Mm, that's right. Well, there might be. It's just underground, so we don't know about it. That's right. And it, well, it's funny because we're quite connected magic players. So if something was underground, we would know about it, but we don't, you might which, be right. which makes it even further underground, or perhaps it just doesn't exist. Because I mean, think about it. These CSGO players are betting with skins, which are in-game items. If we wanted to bet on the outcome of a pro tour with Avacins or foil Emrakuls, we could be doing that, but we're not. Definitely. Well, um, maybe it's just not part of the culture. Like it Maybe isn't. we're just not concerned with that sort of thing. On the other hand, it used to be mm-hmm. very much a part of the culture. I'm not even talking about anti being a thing at the very beginning of the right. game where you would play with uh, certain cards and then you'd tithe 
you know, if you lost, you'd, you'd hand over the card. You'd hand over the card. And if you won, you would get your friend's card. And people got uh, justifiably not so down with this. <laughs> <laughs> Decided to uh, settle their disputes in a different way. But, you know, back in the day, money drafting used to be like a, a staple of the pro tour crowd. Like they would sit in the hotel room there. There was one time that PTR sat in an elevator and have a large hotel where he was staying, like somewhere in Italy, if I recall correctly. And he would, uh, he would just be playing a money match on one of his money drafts like against some guy and random people would just wander into the elevator and as soon as they walked in he would kind of maximize the the nerdiness of it by saying yeah my archwing dragon deals 24 damage to your sorry ass angel <laughs> and the person would just look at him like incredibly confused and then get out of the elevator and he'd do it again <laughs> this kind of self-awareness and humor is something that we should really really have in magic and we've lost a lot of that whimsicality that's funny who is ptr ptr was the the craziest of the magic degenerates he um did things like mummifying Justin Bonomo at the age of 13 in a bunch of magic cards, buying 100 soft tacos and then handing them out to people to uh, just run errands for him at high-level events. Of course, the aforementioned story in the elevator and my favorite one where he made a guess-who board full of uh, pro tour players at the time. What do you think the magic community needs right now? Does it need a villain? Does it need a hero? Or what else? Well, it has exclusively heroes, you know. Nobody does anything bad ever, so that's certainly not the issue. We're all very much Don Quixotes. And in real life, there are no such thing as heroes. There are villains, though, certainly. Um, I don't think a single villain would do it, though. It would be quite uh, felicitous for narrative purposes to have Mike Long or like a Billy Mitchell, if you've watched The King of Kong, the greatest documentary ever shot in the city of Redmond. What it needs, though, it's just an influx of fresh blood. It just needs new people. Like it doesn't need to purge the old people. It just needs a lot more new people who are interested in playing the game. And this is something like as soon as I heard about the uh, the changes in Magic Online and Magic Digital Next and like the big dev team and the revamping of the Pro Tour, which by the way is paying more money next year to the pros, not less after abolishing Platinum. But nobody seems to realize that either. Anyway, it just needs more people. Like. I was talking to a bunch of people at FNM who had only been playing for a few months or like a couple of years. And I'm like, oh, this is great. Mm-hmm. What would make more people into magic? And they answered without exception, if we have a digital product. Ah. And these people played other games. One of them had even made his own digital game. Hmm. For which he claimed quite a huge revenue stream, even though it was a, a fraction of the size of Magic. Another one of them said that she wanted to play Magic, but it took her a lot of courage to come out and play, even though she'd played Hearthstone before. Interesting. And if Magic was to have like a digital game, like a sweet-ass video game, they said, not like Magic Online, nor even that much like Duels, but like Hearthstone, then it would be incredibly popular. And I think these people might be the start of a new wave of not just new Magic players, but new Magic players who play other games, new Magic players who have an interest in um, the outside world of games and beyond that. And also um, new players who feel like if there were more opportunity in Magic, they would play more and they would talk about it more because I wouldn't even be asking these questions of them had I not an idea that there might be change in the air. I would just sort of accept things as they were. Fascinating. Um, Just the whole idea that my skills of understanding magic and magic culture and kind of the game itself could be relevant to a broader audience 
culturally and economically is so exhilarating that even the slightest glimmer of a chance that it could happen is a risk worth taking. I think they've done a good job designing the game by and large for competitive play lately, and I think that the key to Magic's longevity was that it was a good game from that perspective. And I think that they're very close to squaring the circle and getting it to be appealing to a, a broad casual audience too with an online platform and connecting the two. Magic has a lot of unique assets and it has a lot of detriments that are by no means distinctive. You could have an addition to the paper cards in the sense of camaraderie and the sheer delight of having magic cards in your hand and getting that new card smell when you're cracking a booster. If you could have that in addition to a robust online product, that's something to get very excited about. Will it happen? Eh, I'm pretty optimistic, but all of us kind of are. We play this game, don't we? That's right. Far out. Chris, a brief history of magic cards is going to be coming out soon, right? That's right. Brief history of magic cards is out later in July. We'll be uh, selling it digitally, hopefully as a Kindle single, and also physically in card stores and in game stores. So hopefully, just like magic cards themselves, we have a good future in both digital and print media and a broad audience of people that not only like to read and play magic cards, but maybe people who do one or the other as well. And also, it's beautifully illustrated. We have some really nice pictures from strong illustrator Cassie Murphy from around here. She's a recent arrival to Seattle, and her style, I think, is a good fit with the kind of image we want to project. I am very excited to see it. I really want to read it, and I really want to share some photos of it as well. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited that you're excited. Yes. We're going to have all of these links and images in the show notes. Chris, I think we had a really good conversation. And you know what's funny about it is that during this entire interview, I called you Chris. I usually call you CML in my head. Usually I am CML. But <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. My whole life is a quest to find people that will call me CML. And in magic, I more or less found that. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess I can't complain too much. There's a lot of uh, great things that have happened too. Look for a brief history of magic cards in stores and uh, check out my website at cmlrights.com. We have some good interviews with Travis Wu, some good excerpts on the Daily Dot. I'm very grateful for them for uh, helping me promote it. Again, you know, typical writing site, not a magic site. So hopefully we can uh, get that kind of exposure to the broader world that magic sorely needs. I, I, I love it. My brain is just kind of like the, the gears are churning. I'm thinking about all this extra stuff. Definitely. Well, right. Like what else would you like to know? It's all in a brief history of magic cards. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris Morris Lent. If any of these topics piqued your interest, you'll definitely want to check out Chris's new book, A Brief History of Magic Cards. I'll have a link to purchase A Brief History of Magic Cards in the show notes and at kitchentablemagic.org. Look for it in local Seattle game stores as a physical book and also digitally as a Kindle single. Check out Chris's writing at cmlwrites.com. Go say hi to him on Twitter at cmlisawesome. We're going to be doing a giveaway for a signed copy of A Brief History of Magic Cards. Chris and I want to hear from you about how we can make magic more popular and bring more players into the game. Tweet us your thoughts 
at KTM Podcast and at CML is awesome. We're looking forward to having a conversation with the community about your thoughts, and we're going to select one lucky winner to send a signed copy of a brief history of magic cards to. Again, all the links will be in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. So in round 14, I was playing against Cedric Phillips, and he did not want me to concede to him because he thinks that that is not great for magic, and I basically agree with him, so we played out our match. And it got to a point where being three, I was pretty far ahead, and I was attacking him with four big creatures. He's at six life, and he lined up his block, uh, one of which included a shambling bet on a, an animated Gideon. I, I said, be careful. And he paused for a moment, like pulled his creatures back, and then like made sure he's just like, okay, I'm at six. So I'm like, yep, you're at six. And he like lined up the same blocks again. And he's like, all right, block like this. And I was like, uh, Judge, can we get the Oracle deck on, on my Japanese Gideon? And Derek was like, oh no. Yeah, the damage is all prevented to the Gideon, so he won't gain the life off the Shambling Bend, and then he'll take lethal damage. So then he was like, uh, okay, I'm gonna like block differently. And I was like, okay, well, I, I just want want everyone here to know, all the people in the crowd, that Cedric is not okay with getting conceded to, but he is okay with running these back. I'm talking to Jerry Thompson, Platinum Pro with 211 Lifetime Pro Points. Recently, Jerry made history by going completely undefeated in the Swiss rounds of SCG Open Atlanta. Jerry shares with us his early days when he started playing Magic, and his rise as one of the most competitive pro Magic players. Jerry also shares with us a little bit about his time at Wizards R&D, and his podcast titled Game, G-A-M, with Andrew Brown and Michael Majors. You don't want to miss it, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. Hey everyone! Thanks for listening to Season 1 of Kitchen Table Magic. I'd really like to hear from you, the fans, about what you think about the show. Send me a tweet, at KTM Podcast. If you're listening through iTunes, Google Play, or your podcast app, leave me some feedback with a review. If you're listening on SoundCloud, leave a comment on the track. Visit our website, kitchentablemagic.org, to sign up for my newsletter, and of course, email me anytime with your questions. My email is sam at kitchentablemagic.org. And if you're enjoying the show, please support us at patreon.com slash kitchentablemagic. All of your donations go towards making this show better for my listeners and fans. And of course, all Patreon supporters get very special perks. And remember, if you like what you hear, please share Kitchen Table Magic with a friend. Well, we don't really have any sponsors for the show, you know how it goes. But in true magic fashion, I sold some magic cards to fund this amazing podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Tarmogoyf, because I sold some extra Tarmogoyfs I had to a friend of mine. Players often go on and on about how good Tarmogoyf is, and other players don't really see the value of Tarmogoyf because it just eats removal all day long. Regardless of how people feel about Tarmogoyf, I'd like to talk about another aspect of Tarmogoyf. What is it, anyways? I mean, look at the thing. It's like a blob. It's got eyes everywhere. It's got spines everywhere. In the Future Sight artwork, it looks kind of like a bison gone wrong. And then in the Modern Masters artwork, it looks a lot better. Like, we kind of know what it is. But the thing has a gaping mouth that covers the entire face of whatever it is. And also, what is a Lurgoyf? I mean, what is it? I tried to Google it. I couldn't find anything. It was all magic related. I just said what a Lurgoyf was. But that doesn't really answer my question. So, I don't know. I guess for $140, I'm buying a two-drop that I'm still not really sure what it does. All I know is that it swings in for a lot of damage and closes the game. Maybe that's what it is. 